Good evening. W.T. Hamilton was married to Carrie Nichols, who was one of the children of Gus and Matilda Nichols. Brother Gus Nichols was one of the greatest preachers, well-known preachers of his time. W.T. Hamilton and his son Nick were both very faithful gospel preachers. W.T. wrote several books, and I have one of them in my library. It's a book of devotional thoughts on the book of Job, and the title of it is, Yet Trouble Came. And he said in the midst of that book that some of the most severe feelings that people have come from words that should have never been spoken. He said that a careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. He said a bitter word may hate and steal and a brutal word may smite and kill. Maybe you found yourself on the end of somebody's hope-killing words and it can make all the difference not only in how your day goes but even it can affect the course of your life. But on the other hand, we appreciate words that are said to us in passages like Solomon's in Proverbs 26:11, words we often repeat that like apples of gold in settings of silver are those words that are fitting and timely. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 23. Maybe as we are trying to conduct ourselves in this life, we find ourselves looking for a mission statement, something that can help us and guide us in how we find ourselves living in this word. As we live in this world, we can think about the words that were said by the pre-incarnate Jesus. That is, before he came in the flesh. He says in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4 that the Lord had given him the tongue of a disciple that he might know how to sustain the weary one with the word. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. If we're going to partner with that prayer, the prayer that our Lord prayed in Isaiah 50 and verse 4, we've got to come to some realizations We've got to come to understand that we belong to God, that God has given us our resources. Jesus himself would understand in his mission on this earth that it is the Lord that gives me the tongue. And there also has to be a proper focus, and that is that as I live my life day by day, that there are going to be weary individuals out there. And I've got to make a determination, and that is that I am going to sustain the weary one with the words that I use. And I must come to a proper understanding of myself. And that understanding is that I find myself as a disciple of Christ. I appreciate Ronnie giving us the background on what's going on in Acts chapter 26. So often we say that we have Luke giving us the actual account of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. And as Paul is appearing before different officials on his way to Rome, that you're going to find him recounting the moment that he became a Christian. The time that he began to be a mouthpiece for the hope that God has us in this world to share. The first is in Acts chapter 22. As the arrest has just happened, he has moved then to Felix and now he's before Agrippa. And as he's in front of Agrippa, he begins to recount why he's in chains. Yes, he's in front of Agrippa, but he knows that he has an appointment to stand in front of Nero and he explains why he's in his chains. He says, I'm in these chains and looking at his Pharisee heritage because of hope 
in the promise that God gave to Abraham. Acts chapter 26 and verse 6. He says it's a hope that all of my Jewish brethren share. Acts chapter 26 and verse 7. And so he gets to the part that we have read tonight in Acts chapter 26 verse 16 through 20 when the Lord has spoken to him on the road to Damascus and he says that I'm sending you as a minister and a witness to me of the things that you've seen and heard and the things in which I'm going to appear to you. That I'm going to deliver you from the Jews and the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. That you're going to open their eyes to turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God to demonstrate the forgiveness of sins, to show the sharing of the inheritance with the saints. And he says, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to this heavenly vision, but I began to witness first in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and then throughout all of the region of Judea and finally to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and they should bring forth uh, deeds appropriate to repentance. Now as Paul stands before Agrippa on that occasion in Acts chapter 26 verse 16 through 20, he is talking to him at what would have been very difficult times. When you think about the times in which he was living, they were troublesome in many ways. The times in the first century would have been difficult times of economic challenge. When you think about most people that lived in the Roman Empire in the first century, they were extremely poor. There may have been a small percentage of those in the empire that were extremely wealthy. There wasn't a middle class, so to speak, but most people struggled day after day just to make it by. And not only was it that way, but folks who became Christians in the first century world, it got worse. They faced being blackballed. They faced being ostracized for their faith. They even had their property taken from them. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 34. Those times of economic challenge could have been brought on by any number of things that could have taken them from subsistence to starvation. They might have found themselves struggling and economically in trouble because of natural disasters. It happened to the saints throughout the Judean world, Acts chapter 11 and verse 28. They may have found themselves thrown into economic hardship because of racial prejudice as it was in Acts chapter 18 and verse 2. They may have found themselves in economic hardship and challenge because of unethical practices that disfavored the poor. That lies at the heart of the message of the book of James. And so as Paul stood in front of Agrippa, a man very wealthy, and in that very small percentage of people, he knew that he was standing in times of economic hardship and challenge. But it was also times of political challenge. There was so much intrigue and faction and division and extremism that existed in the first century world. You know, Jesus is about to go to the cross and he warns his disciples that in that very generation, the fruits of political upheaval were going to just bring all kind of tumult to their world. Acts chapter 24, verse 3 through 35. Not only that, when we think about what was going on politically in the world Gamaliel gives us a little bit of insight as to what things were like in Acts chapter 5, verse 36 and 37. We don't have anything that we can relate to, to the political corruption and upheaval of their times. But then there were also times of racial challenge. There was an ongoing fight 
in the Roman Empire between the Jews and the Romans over a place that the Jews thought was their natural home and they should not have anybody looking over them. And the Roman Empire said it's all fair and square. We took it. We own it. There was racial prejudice. And it is so often as the case, it wasn't one-sided. There was prejudice on both sides. There was very obviously prejudice by the Jews against the Romans. I mean, you can read it in what happens in Paul's arrest. The very reason that he was incarcerated was because of a racial prejudice that exists by the Jews against the Gentiles. Look at Acts chapter 21. Or in Romans chapter 9 through 11, the longest single topic of Paul in in the book of Romans is at its heart a racial problem. But you know what? The Romans were also prejudiced against the the Jews. We see this in Jesus preparing his Jewish disciples in Matthew 5, 41 and following for the enemy who would have largely been the Gentile world. And Peter writes that first epistle, 1 Peter, to those Jewish Christians who are scattered abroad and he warns them that they're going to be looked down on and they're going to face hardship at the hands of the Gentiles. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. They were times of racial problems. But of course there were also spiritual challenges. We know from reading our New Testament, in fact we know as Christians where God's lines of right and wrong are because of the many passages that talk about the moral and ethical corruption of the first century world. Just read Romans chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 3 or 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 2 and see the moral and ethical woes. Now as we think about what Paul is doing in front of Agrippa, as he is trying to share the hope that he had and that he wanted everyone to have, I want you to think about how much like his day our day is. Do we find ourselves tonight in economic challenges, economic uncertainties? Do we find ourselves in times of political upheaval in our world? Do we find ourselves in a circumstance where there's racial tension and is there moral and ethical problems in the world in which we find ourselves? But what I would suggest to you is that in these dark times that God has Christians as a light in this world to be able to share hope in a hopeless time. As we get ready on Sunday night to end our day of worship and our day of fellowship together, as we're about to go out into our week, we're going to go as people who possess a hope out into a world of people that have no hope. And God has us here to be a blessing to those who are in this world. And I think that what Paul says to Agrippa holds the key of four blessings that our world can get from us as we interact with them this week. First of all, we realize from this text that biblical hope opens eyes. As the Apostle Paul is telling Agrippa, he says, He has sent me as a witness and as a minister to those who are out there who are in darkness, that I can turn them to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. What he says is, is that the Lord sent me to open their eyes. I find that ironic because when Paul, or Saul as he was at the time, encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. He lost his eyesight. And three days later it's restored and perhaps as the result of this encounter with Jesus, his eyes were never what they were before that encounter. But he says, God has sent me to open up the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. I suggest to you that as we think about the mission that God has given to us, 
that God wants us, even though we've not had a bodily encounter with Jesus, He wants us to do the very same thing, to open the eyes of people who can't see hope without us. You know, I think about Elisha. He's taken over for Elijah. The Arameans have come and they've encircled the city. And as they find themselves in that circumstance, Elisha and his servant, the servant's panicking. And as he sees all the Arameans that are encircling the city, he speaks to Elisha. And Elisha says, those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. And then he prays to God, Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17. What a difference it was made when the servant's eyes were opened. And that's the world we live in. Their eyes are not open to the hope that we have. And so what do we expect in a world whose painting consists of the drawings that they're doing themselves and on their palette there aren't the colors that only come through the truth of the gospel. Because we have a hope, we can help to open their eyes so that they can see what they will not see otherwise. When we think about the hope that comes through Jesus Christ, we have the ability to open up eyes. There's a world out there who, the world has the camera, has the microphones, has the media outlets. What do we expect them to say? But as we see the hope that comes when eyes are open through the gospel, it helps people who are in the latter parts of their lives to see past the woes and the infirmities of old age. It helps people to see past political governments and regimes. It helps people to see past the economic challenges. It helps people to deal with the problems of personal life and interpersonal relationships. It helps folks who are hanging under the dark cloud of sin and temptation. How many people will we see this week who would pray the prayer of David if they knew to pray it? Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Psalm 119 and verse 18. God has you and me to interact in this world so that through the hope that we possess that we can help to open the eyes of those who are seeking, seeking some meaning in life. You know, Peter was the first to preach the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles and he spoke of the living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. And he says that, that he lived and that the Christians should live fixing our hope on the grace that's to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1 and verse 13, a hope that comes through the gospel, 1 Peter 1, 21 through 25. The apostle Paul, he ties together hope and the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and so it is throughout the entire New Testament. One of the blessings in our hope that we have is that we can help to open the eyes of people who don't even know they're walking in blindness. The second blessing of this biblical hope is that it shows the way to the forgiveness of sins. As Paul is walking through this commission that Christ has given to him, he says that he has sent me to open the eyes of those from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, and then he says to show the possibility of the forgiveness of sins. Christ's commission to Paul was very specific. He wanted him to go out of the background of what he had seen and heard, Acts chapter 26 and verse 22, and tell the people out there what, was, that what he had experienced was possible for them to experience. You know, personal testimony can be overdone if we allow it to overshadow the glory of the cross. 
But I think if we do that in a right way, it can be such a powerful asset. How many people do we encounter every day who believe that the forgiveness of sins is beyond their reach? It's not a possibility for them. And here's the Apostle Paul who shows himself by saying, here's what I was and here's what I became through the forgiveness of sins. I mean, even as he speaks to Agrippa, a wicked man, mind you, look what he says in Acts chapter 26 and verse 9. He says, I thought to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he kind of walks through some of what that is. He says, I was um, intimidating them. I was furiously enraged with them. I was uh, persecuting them, punishing them. Acts chapter 26, verse 10 and 11. And yet what was the difference, Paul? There was the mercy and grace of God. And as you look all over the New Testament, you find examples of the Apostle Paul saying these very same things. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I was uh, an injurious, I was a violent aggressor, I was a persecutor, but I found God's grace. In verse 15 and 16, he says, I was the chief of sinners, and yet I was confronted with God's mercy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9, he says, I persecuted the church of God, and yet I saw God's marvelous grace. We don't need the bloody and checkered past of the Apostle Paul to be able to share with others the hope and the gratitude that we have because our sins have been forgiven. When we look at our own lives, we see what we've been rescued from. Because all of us are wrapped into that category of those who have sinned, we can say we've been rescued. We have been rescued from this present evil world, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1 and verse 13. We have been rescued from the wrath that's to come, 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. As Paul is standing there in front of Agrippa... He is a man who's been not just reformed, he's been transformed by the grace of our Lord and His mercy. And as we stand before anyone this week, we're going to be in the same position. Now we come with a cognizance and awareness that we can't give a false or distorted hope. We've got to give a true representation of the hope that's possible. We can't declare peace, peace when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6 and verse 14. We're going to share and declare the entirety of God's plan of salvation in its simplicity, in its purity, in its entirety. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 41. And then once we have and we've helped them into Christ, we're not going to swerve to the left or the right and showing them the duties and the expectations of those who are in Christ and enjoying His spiritual blessings. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. There are folks around us who are so sunk in their sin... They need to know that there's hope, and there is. You know, you think about David, a man who certainly appreciates the the ravages and the consequences of sin in life. There are people that we are confronted with all the time, no matter what facade, no matter what exterior picture that they are painting for us, who themselves are struggling with the reality of forgiveness. Man, we can point them to David, a man who had gone as low as a person could go. And you go to places like Psalm chapter 38, a self-inflicted trouble that had been caused by his sin. And what does he do? He acknowledges how his sin affected God, Psalm 38 verse 1 and 2. He understood that this sin was serious, verse 4 through 8. 
He realized that he was inadequate to take care of the magnitude of his sin problem. Verse 9 through 14. But he hoped in God who could give him the deliverance from his sin. Verse 15 through 22. And then in Psalm 51, the one that we know better. He understood that to get that taken care of, first he had to acknowledge what he had done. David is very frank in talking about what, understanding what his sin had done in his life and what that sin was. But he also understood what God could do. And he had confidence in God forgiving him of that. He knew that he must do what he had to do. And then he could help others with what they needed to do. You know, that's where we find ourselves in the last part of Psalm 51. We acknowledge the presence of sin in our life and the power of God at work in our life that causes us to do what we must do in order to be restored to us the joy of our salvation. And then God wants us to go out and to share that with everybody else. Biblical hope demonstrates the possibility of the forgiveness of sins. A third thing that Paul tells Agrippa that is the power of the blessing of biblical hope Biblical hope is that which points us to an inheritance. You know, as Paul is describing what's going on with Agrippa, we find that in such distinction with the inequities that people try to measure lives with. When we talk about what's the difference between me and you, between my life and your life, we make distinctions. And we make that distinction based on sometimes gender. Or maybe we make that distinction. What's the difference between me and you on race? Or sometimes it's on education. Or sometimes it's on finance. But God breaks it down and makes it very simple for us. He divides all of humanity into one of two categories. The saved and the lost. And I love what Jesus says in that parable of preparation in Matthew 25 and verse 34. To those who are going to spend eternity with him forever, he says, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's interesting how often the Apostle Paul ties together sanctification and inheritance. When we think about those two terms, sanctification means set apart by God for holy service. God has taken us out of the world and he has dedicated us for his use in this world. That makes us vessels able to be his instruments of hope. But inheritance is that which we stand to gain by hearing and believing and obeying the instruction that leads one to be set apart by God. The Apostle Paul is laying it out there for us, helping us to see that God wants to take us out of the common world and make us his children. And out of that, give us more than we could have hoped for. People who are at the cusp of giving up hope need to realize what God has intended for us, the exalted position he wants us to have, and what he wants to give to us in the end. My dad is... And my mom and my brother are coming for Thanksgiving this week. My dad started preaching full-time in 1964. And I've known as long as I have been alive that I wanted to preach, as long as I could remember. And as I think about getting older and those first job opportunities I was trying to take advantage of, I wanted to see dad's resume. It was the first time I had seen this. I know it wasn't original with my dad, but he put his philosophy of preaching at the top of his resume. 
It was very simple. He says, my job as a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I thought, what a profound concept. You know, that's our job as children of God. There are people all around us who are afflicted, certainly in a spiritual sense. And what we want to provide for them is access to a comfort that nothing in this world can compare to. And that comes by access into Christ and the hope that only He offers. And you know what? We have that opportunity with each other. This is a church that stays connected with one another. And we have the opportunity sometimes that we don't even know with people who may be struggling and we're not aware of it. But as we stay tuned in to one another and we encourage one another, we can comfort those who are afflicted. You listen to the announcements. We hear about it through one another, what we are going through in different ways. We are to comfort each other as we're afflicted. But we also sometimes need to afflict those that are comfortable. We're going to do it in the right demeanor and with the right attitude. But there are those who may believe that things are just fine, but the gospel lovingly presented is going to open their eyes to some things that needed to change so that hope can be realized and not ruined. Paul and Agrippa could not have been more different from one another. And as the apostle stands before the king, he is showing him, you may be in this exalted position, but there's something greater for you. And we have that same ability as children of God. But then also we see that biblical hope urges repentance. That may seem like a negative thing. But the Apostle Paul says, God has sent me to the Jews and the Gentiles to teach this message of repentance, to turn to God and to do what's right. A message of repentance is not meant to beat people down, but to give them true hope. If there's going to be hope after this life, there has to be repentance in this life. And so the Apostle Paul boldly speaks to a man who has no interest at this point in being a Christian. You know what he's going to say in verse 28? Maybe in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian. I'm not there, but, but as you say this, you're opening up even my hard heart. It was a message of repentance that he taught. I don't know how often you spend in the prophets, the major prophets and especially the minor prophets. But so often their message is a message of repentance and of judgment. But all the way through those messages, in the heart of many of them, and at the end of all of them, there's a message of hope that comes through repentance. It requires a lot of us to get outside of our comfort zone, to declare the whole counsel of God, not sacrificing a bit of that as we interact with those that we have relationships with in the world. But they need that message of repentance if there is to be hope for them. Well, I want to make some observations as we close. As we think about the hope that we carry out of this place, as we've shared it together today, some reminders and some admonitions. Number one, realize that so many of the people that we meet have spiritually blinded eyes. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Paul talks about the Corinthians and he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of God, who is the, of Christ, which is the image of God, should shine unto them. God is counting on you and me to be those who are able to approach them and open their eyes so they can see. And so we need a program, a way for us to look and see how are we going to share the gospel with those whose eyes are blinded. 
Be thinking about who it is in your life that you can work on furthering that relationship. Getting to a place where you can help them to have the blinders to remove. Now, if those blinders are not removed and you're kindly sharing the gospel with them, that's not on you, that's on them. But think about somebody whose eyes you can open. A second thing to remember is, are we making salvation and forgiveness seem possible or elusive? You know, we have a balanced message. The message is a balance between justice and mercy. In our conversations, as we turn them to the spiritual, we need to share with people the motivation that caused God to send Christ in the first place. It's a mind-boggling concept. When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. We need to try to share with them the concept of what happens with a person who is in Christ. I know there are those in this world who have abused the concept with a once saved, always saved mentality. But there's a blessed assurance that comes to one who walks in the light of the blood of Christ cleansing us from sin. Because of the hope we have, we need to make sure that everybody that we meet says can be told, it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, there's hope for you because of who God is. Then third, we need to find ways to talk about our exalted identity and the expectations that we have. You know, there's a controversy going on. Most of you, it's usually something only preachers know and a few others know. And I don't want to talk about the specifics of it. But folks are arguing right now about what heaven is going to be like and some of those particulars. That's really not something that we need to concern ourselves with too much. But that the heaven is a place that is promised for the faithful. And we need to find ways to talk more about it. People need to know that that's where we're expecting to go and that's what we're longing for. It needs to come off of our lips. Or the spiritual blessings that we enjoy because we are in Christ and how wonderful life is because of that. And because of, uh, and the identity that we have as children of God of having a perfect father and a sinless older brother. We need to talk about how wonderful it is to be a member of the Lord's church. And so as we have conversations with others and the church ever comes up in our topic of conversation, we're going to speak highly about it, lovingly about it as the bride of Christ. But then also an admonition is that that we should be wise people who understand the times. We've mentioned these passages lately. 1 Chronicles 12, 32, Esther 1 and verse 13. The men of Issachar and the wise men of Cyrus, the great men who understood what was going on in society. And so we're going to be plugged in. We're going to understand what's going on in the broader world and also in our community. You know, it doesn't mean that we become social media junkies or or cable news addicts, but it does mean that we know what's going on. The Apostle Paul did not live in a tower of isolation. I read what he says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 and verse 18, and he says, From the first day that I set foot in Asia, I was with you all the time. In verse 20 and 21, he says, Publicly and from house to house, I was proclaiming of faith in God and in Jesus Christ. We need to make sure that we're not cloistered in isolation, but that we find ourselves out in the midst of others 
so that we can help connect them to hope through the influence that we'll have on them. We also need to share with them what biblical hope is not. Biblical hope is not dodging the issues. We need to be very careful about how we talk about those things. There are some very sensitive things that are are dividing us in society. And certainly we never want to come from a political angle, but you know a lot of the issues that somehow make their way into politics are at their base biblical issues. Whether we're talking about the sanctity of, of the pre-born life, or we're talking about marriage as God has laid it out in his word, between a man and a woman, whatever those are, we're not helping someone have hope if we let them think that it's okay to live in a way that's rebellious to God. It's also not telling people what they want to hear. I don't know about you, but that's something I struggle with. I struggle with hurting anybody or, or, or making them uh, or saying something that would cause them not to like me. But then I think about the Apostle Paul's words. He's facing imminent execution at Nero. And he says that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll accumulate into themselves teachers having itching ears. They'll turn away their ears from the truth and will be turned unto fables. The Apostle Paul struggled with that. Another time when he was in prison, he says, I want you to pray for me, Colossians 4, 4, Ephesians 6, 20, that I will have boldness, that I will speak as I ought to speak. We need to pray for each other. You know, I know about some incidents that have happened very recently where individuals have had to say hard things to people. It would have been very easy for them to say just what those people wanted to hear. God has called us to give people true hope a hope that only comes in conforming to God's will. Marshal Patain was the marshal of France when Hitler invaded France. And Patain told the French people that they had fallen. There was a man who was a true patriot in France at that time. He was in exile. He got out to London. He began to do radio broadcasts in which he was urging people to realize that hope was not lost, that they were not defeated. And people began to listen to these programs right across the English Channel. And as they heard that, it built their determination. They heard the fervor and the passion of this man. They didn't know his name. And when they knew his name, they, the French, didn't know how to spell his name. They didn't know what he looked like. They didn't have a picture of him. Paris's airport is named for him today, Charles de Gaulle. Nobody knew him, but he shared a a determination, a hope that caused them to gain success because they listened to his message of hope. Now, it's remarkable to me that you and I, and I say all of us because we're here, we are here because of someone whose face we have never seen and whose life and teaching we know only because of this book. And yet he is the source of our hope and our determination. It's because of what he is and what he has done that not only do we possess that hope, but we share it with others. And God wants that. Because of what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 24, we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, what does he yet hope for? But if we do with patience, wait for it. See, that's what makes the difference. The hope that has brought us together today is a hope that the world needs. As we leave from here tonight, we have the ability to spread that hope. And as we do, we're going to have the opportunity to open eyes. 
Open eyes not just to the mundane, but to the most important thing of all, and that's the forgiveness of sins. And an exaltation of position and expectation that we have the hope of an inheritance from the one who owns it all, the inexhaustible riches of God. But it's a message that includes repentance. Let's pray for each other this week that we'll have the opportunity to share hope with the folks that we see through the course of doing our job and being in school so that they may share the bright hope that we have. Tonight it may be that you've not yet embraced that hope for yourself and you're ready to act on your faith that Jesus is God's Son, to repent of sins and to have those sins washed away through the act of baptism. We're ready to help you if you want to make that decision right now. If as a child of God you've allowed the darkness of this world and the dominion of Satan to eclipse the bright hope that God has through His Son, you need to come back home to Him and have us to pray for you and with you. It would be our honor to do that. If this is your invitation and you need to respond, won't you do it right now as we stand and sing?